Welcome to Language and Justice, a podcast about the intersection of, you guessed it, language and justice. Episode 5, Endangered but Not Extinct. COVID-19. I think we can all agree that it has shaken the world. I haven't talked much about the pandemic on the show so far, but today it feels particularly relevant. Thanks to COVID, grief and loss have become a regular part of our everyday life. Loss has taken many forms. We've certainly lost people, human lives, and sadly that number is now upwards of 2.5 million worldwide. And we've also lost time and experiences, something anyone who's attempted to celebrate a birthday, graduation, wedding, new family member, or other milestone in the past year knows well. But we've also begun to lose something else, languages. Language loss is actually a pretty big issue that's not particularly new, but it's hard to imagine what that looks like if you only speak one of the world's most popular languages, like, say, English or Mandarin Chinese, which each have over a billion speakers worldwide. Maybe you've learned other languages like Spanish, Arabic, French, Russian, Portuguese, or Urdu. But all of these are still within the 10 most spoken languages of the world, with hundreds of millions of speakers each. Even if you speak a slightly lesser-known language, like Thai, Filipino, or Dutch, you're still talking about a language spoken by tens of millions of people. So if you fall into this category, try to imagine for a moment what it would be like to speak a language with fewer than a million speakers. That's roughly the size of a city like Austin, Texas, or Stockholm, Sweden. It still seems like quite a lot, no? How about speaking a language with fewer than 1,000 speakers? Now we're getting into something a little more precarious. Think of a concert venue like the House of Blues. A thousand people is not very many. You can look at them all in one shot. Now imagine you speak a language with only 100 speakers. You could fit all the speakers of your language in a room smaller than most modern-day movie theaters. Sure enough, these languages do exist. More than half of the languages that are actively spoken today have only 10,000 or fewer speakers, and a quarter have less than 1,000. That's a pretty substantial number of languages with a pretty insubstantial amount of speakers. But for those of us who speak a language with a billion speakers, it's easy to forget about these languages, and we never hear them or even hear of them. And just like a tree falling in the forest with no one there to hear it, if an endangered language disappears and you didn't know it existed in the first place, it'll be like it never even made a sound. And yet it did. And it does. On this episode of Language and Justice, we'll be talking about endangered languages. What exactly is endangering them, and how the danger has only gotten more extreme during the dire times we're all living through since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yes, as you might have guessed, social inequality and injustice are definitely a key factor in all of this. What does it mean for a language to be endangered? Well, if you know what an endangered animal is, you can probably figure it out. An endangered animal is an animal that may soon become extinct, if someone doesn't take measures to protect that species from whatever external threats are endangering it. An endangered language is similar, though obviously not the same. Ethnolog, an organization devoted to documenting all the world's languages, defines language endangerment in terms of a scale. 
Languages can be endangered by living in the shadow of a more dominant language, despite having a large number of speakers. Or they can be endangered by being on the verge of extinction, which would be a, quote, loss of all individuals who continue to identify the language as being related to their identity. The relationship to identity is really important to remember, since we've already talked a lot about how closely language is related to culture, as well as other important personal features. In any case, languages that are endangered are in some way threatened and could soon go extinct. Now, you may not realize that a language can be extinct or dead, since you may not think of it as alive in the first place. But maybe you've been exposed to a language like Latin or Sanskrit, languages that were spoken a long, long time ago and which have no speakers today. Or, if they do have speakers, these are people who have made the choice to start speaking the language. They weren't born into a community of speakers. And that's because there are no communities of speakers. There's no society on this earth where Latin is the language that people speak. Thousands of years ago, Latin was the language of the Roman Empire, and the empire was so successful that the language was spoken far beyond where it originated. For better or for worse, that's often the way it goes. Language is completely tied up in political and societal power structures. The Roman Empire was successful, not in any small part due to their military power, and so the language was able to spread all over the place. And even today, centuries after the last speakers of what we called classical Latin lived, the traces of this language are found in some of the most widely spoken languages of our times. English, French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. Even in the 21st century, you might have been forced to take Latin in school, with the reasoning being that it would help you to learn other languages, even English, and might make you better equipped to handle something like SAT vocabulary. The language of law, science, and medicine is full of little bits of Latin here and there. Sometimes it's obvious, like the Latin names for plants and animals, or legal terms such as habeas corpus. But other times it's more subtle, like a certain prefix or suffix whose meaning has carried over from the ancient language into our own. From my own experience, I can agree with the benefits of learning this dead language, frustrating as it may be if it's not taught well. Learning Latin can be a big help for learning the vocab of other European languages. Plus, it can help you learn about basic linguistic concepts that aren't talked about in your other classes, like syntax, for example. If I hadn't studied Latin, I might never have gotten into linguistics in the first place. But I digress. Okay, so Latin is a great example of a dead language because it made such an impact on world history, and especially European history, that we pretty much all know about it and still talk about it to this day. But what about the thousands of other languages that have died in the last few hundred years? Today, there are roughly 7,000 languages spoken worldwide, and a few hundred just within the Americas. But if we looked at the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, we'd find that this region was home to around 1,000 distinct languages. That's a lot of different languages, and they weren't all just different variations of a common umbrella language. Not even close. They were totally distinct. That means if you traveled only 100 miles, say, the distance between New York and Philadelphia, you'd be in a land where you couldn't understand a single word of what's being said. Can you even imagine it? Take an even closer look. In the area now known as the United States, the pre-colonial societies amounted to about 250 diverse languages. 250 in the U.S. alone. Today, there are an estimated 169 indigenous languages that are still spoken throughout the country, with a high density of speakers residing in the Southwest. Of those languages, though, less than 20 of them have over 2,000 speakers, and speakers of these languages are more likely to be over the age of 65. 
Using data from 2010, the U.S. Census reported that 372,000 people are speaking a North American indigenous language at home. Within the U.S., there's only one family of Native American languages that has over 25,000 speakers, and that's the Navajo family. Keep in mind that if we move outside of the U.S., indigenous languages have fared slightly better, such as Quechua, the Mayan languages, Guarani, Nahuatl, Mixtec, and many others spoken in Mexico and South and Central America, and also languages like Cree and Ojibwe in Canada. But for a number of reasons, the U.S.'s native languages are in a different boat. So the Roman Empire was a politically powerful, economically thriving civilization with a widespread population, and thus it was home to a widely spoken language. On the contrary, today's Native American languages are spoken by relatively few speakers, due in part to the small size of their populations. While there were roughly 20 million indigenous people living in the region of the United States before colonization, there are now between 2 and 5 million, depending on who you count, which is, of course, another issue for another day. But let's not fall into the trap of erasing the significance of this population. Too often, the Native American population is downplayed or described as non-existent. People will say that the Europeans killed them all, or that they all died of diseases brought by the colonists. Yes, some of that is true, and it would be wrong to deny the atrocities that were done to the original inhabitants of this land. But it's also wrong to deny that many indigenous people survived and continue to thrive to this day. Two million people is not nothing. But as we discussed on a previous episode, Native Americans are subject to some of the worst living conditions and health disparities of all people inhabiting the U.S. Life expectancy is five and a half years shorter than all other races combined, and rates of alcoholism, suicide, and self-harm are all higher than the rest of the country. The median income is lower, and the poverty rate is higher for Native Americans than for everyone else. According to the National Congress of American Indians, American Indians and Alaska Natives are more likely to experience violent crimes at a rate of two and a half times higher than the national average. And compared to other racial or ethnic groups, they are two times more likely to experience rape or sexual assault crimes. The statistics go on and on. If any of this is surprising to you, or if you don't know about the history of this country's treatment of indigenous people, I highly encourage you to do some research that will help to fill in the gaps. I recommend reading Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's 2014 book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, for a comprehensive overview. But needless to say, it is clear that this country's indigenous population collectively experiences neglect at the national level, and even the most populous group, the Navajo Nation, is still pretty far off from the Roman Empire in terms of widespread population and political power. So when a Native American language dies, it doesn't fare quite the same way as Latin did. But who's to say which loss is more important? The history of indigenous language endangerment goes back about as far as the history of indigenous genocide in this country. It's not that hard to understand. When you kill a people, you kill a language. But is a people diminished and dwindled the same thing as a people entirely extinct? Of course not. And the horrific genocides that took place over the course of the history of the U.S., tragic and consequential as they were, were often messy, and people were left behind, separated from their families and cultures, traumatized and impoverished, but there nonetheless. The fact that there remained two to five million indigenous people in the U.S. is a testament to the resilience of those who survived these atrocities. But I don't want to just talk about murder and physical violence. I want to talk about political, societal, psychological violence, too. 
A big part of the history of Native American cultural devastation and resilience is the history of Native American boarding schools. The idea behind Native American boarding schools, which prevailed through the 19th century and even into the 20th, was simple, but also simplistic. Kill the Indian, save the man. It was a theory of assimilation, taking a group of people who had significant differences from the ruling population and trying to minimize those differences as much as possible so that the people who were seen as different could become one and the same with the rest of the population. This is a question that we still debate all the time. Should people with differences let those differences be made visible or try to hide them? Should we all strive to erase what makes us stand out so that we can fit in? And more importantly, should the outsiders in question be able to make these decisions for themselves or should they be made for them? In this case, the U.S. government chose the latter in a big way, with major consequences. The government opened around 150 of these so-called boarding schools where Native American children were forced to give up the cultures they brought with them when they arrived. Make no mistake, these schools were not a benevolent institution aimed at bringing the Native American population to a level of equality with white America. Certainly not. This was just one of many attempts made by white Europeans to quote-unquote civilize a group of non-white people with a culture that they didn't understand— and who, by the way, had their own civilizations long before the Europeans arrived. As the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1885 explained, it is cheaper to give them education than to fight them. And so, education was what they gave to tens of thousands of young indigenous children of various cultures and tribes. These kids were forced to give up any outward sign that they were indigenous. Traditional clothing, long hair, and, yep, language. If kids spoke their native languages, they would be physically punished. They were forbidden to behave in any way that signaled their home culture, and they were forbidden to contact their own communities. The children were not exactly rewarded for following these rules with military-like regimentation, either. Widespread food shortages and lack of medical care have been reported, and both physical and sexual abuse was described, with many children dying while under the care of these schools. Children who made it out alive no longer had any connection with the cultures and communities from which they came. The U.S. government had essentially cut all ties for them. The awful conditions should make more sense when we hear about the founder of the first of these schools, Richard Pratt. This army officer apparently based his school philosophy off of one he had designed for an Indian prison. Go figure. It was Pratt who was cited with this infamous quote that started the awful tradition. A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Many indigenous languages dwindled to extinction as a result of almost two centuries of this kind of schooling. Between that and the physical violence and destruction of indigenous societies, it's no surprise that indigenous languages today are still struggling. And in the last year, they faced a new challenge, the COVID-19 pandemic. On January 24th of this year, Jody Archambault, a hunk papa and Oglala Lakota woman who worked under the president for Native American Affairs in the Obama administration, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that got a lot of people paying attention, all of a sudden, to the issue of language endangerment. Her piece, titled How COVID-19 Threatens Native Languages, discusses how the pandemic has brought new challenges to an already fragile situation, 
the status of Native American languages. The article starts by citing that over the past four centuries, nine out of ten Native Americans have died from either war or disease. That gives a pretty good overview of the 400 years that Native Americans have been living under brutal treatment in this country, and it sets the tone for what's to come, even more devastating death by disease. You may have heard that communities of color were hit the hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic, and that's true. Since way back in March 2020, it was clear that Black and Latinx Americans were more likely than whites to have a severe case of COVID and even to die from it. There are a number of reasons for this. For one thing, people living with chronic health problems like diabetes and heart disease were more likely to have a deadly case. And who tends to have more chronic health problems? Well, people who don't have access to adequate health care. Generally speaking, people of lower socioeconomic status people living in dangerous environments, and yes, people with language barriers. We talked a lot about the issues that people from multilingual and multicultural backgrounds face in healthcare, so if you want to learn more about that, check out episode two. In summary, though, suffice it to say that the less socio-political power you have due to structures like racism, classism, sexism, and so on, the more likely you are to be susceptible to diseases like COVID-19. And that's the case with the U.S. indigenous population, too. A CDC report shows that Native Americans have died at nearly twice the rate of white people as a result of the pandemic. And across the board, people over 60 have been the largest age group to be killed by the disease, meaning that in Native populations, it is Native elders who have been lost, who are in many cases the generation most likely to still be speakers of their tribe's language. For the Dakota and Lakota people of the Standing Rock Reservation, the average age of speakers of the Native language is 70, and the situation is similar in other tribes. A spokesperson for the Muscogee Creek Nation compared these losses to a cultural book burning, where they're losing a historical record, and that one day there won't be anybody to pass this knowledge down. Keep in mind that many tribes are actively involved in language revitalization efforts too, such as programs that pair elders with young children to help them pass down the language. Or in cases where the language is even more deeply endangered, sometimes that means adults are learning it from scratch too, with the aid of historical documents. Many linguists make language revitalization projects their life's work, and it's some of the most urgent work a linguist can do. As Archambault writes, we are running out of time. We are losing the links that bind thousands of generations to the present day. We are losing our chance to inherit their understanding of what it means to be human. The COVID-19 pandemic has made a lot of things seem more urgent and less urgent. Our priorities have shifted. Our beliefs about the world have changed. And for the speakers of indigenous languages in the United States, and for anyone who cares about the prosperity of the world's many diverse languages, this is one issue of linguistic social justice that we need to pay attention to. So here's the deal. Languages around the world are endangered. UNESCO estimates that around 43% of all the world's languages today are endangered, and that means almost half of the world's languages are on the road to extinction. That's pretty scary. If almost half the planet's animals were endangered, we'd be concerned enough to at least be talking about it. But half the planet's languages? Some say that there's an in-between ground, when a language is not quite active, but not quite dead either, and that is a dormant language just like a dormant volcano that's sort of asleep but could come back in all its power any time, a dormant language may not be actively spoken, but it still exists and could come back if a society tries hard enough and has adequate support. That's the case for many native languages, 
whose populations still value the language and see it as an important part of their cultural identity, but who are not quite in a place yet where there are a set of speakers using it in daily life. I learned about this idea from Ophelia Zepeda, a Tohono O'odham poet, linguist, and MacArthur genius. Her words inspired me to see all quote-unquote dead languages as just dormant, waiting to be taken up by a new group of speakers who want to see them come back to life. Many people say that when you lose a language, you lose a culture. Maybe that's oversimplifying things, but you definitely lose a huge part of it. Jody Archambault's op-ed ends with a plea for people to pay attention to this issue, especially now, while these communities continue to suffer due to the pandemic. After highlighting the need for government support in the form of healthcare and preventative measures for the virus, she writes, The next federal budget must fully fund tribal language restoration programs. We are asking for $750 million a year, a pittance compared with the resources expended over the centuries to destroy our languages and cultures. As a linguist, there are a number of opportunities to get involved in language documentation and revitalization projects. But as a non-linguist, your help in these projects is just as important. And the first step is spreading the word about language endangerment. Indigenous languages have long been neglected, illegitimized, or deliberately wiped off the face of the earth not unlike the people who speak them. The way that indigenous people have been treated, particularly since the beginning of the time of European colonization of the Americas, is one of the great atrocities of our history. And the way their languages have been treated is one of the great linguistic injustices. And the consequences of both continue to this day. One way we can try to start righting this wrong is by listening to what indigenous people who live and breathe today are saying about all this. What are the issues facing their communities, and what can non-Indigenous folks do to help? So let's start by listening to Jodi Archambault. Read her op-ed, which you can find in the show notes. I'll end with another quote from this article, which brings my point home. I believe that if Americans knew what we're facing, they would help us. If history has taught us anything, it's that generations to come will need that wisdom more than we can imagine. For more information, please check out the resources in the show notes, as well as the Language Conservancy, Living Tongues Institute, and Cultural Survival, some of the many organizations who have prioritized this extremely important work. Please leave a review, leave your feedback, and subscribe. And until next time, this has been Language and Justice. Language and Justice is created, written, and produced by Anya McAlinden. For more information, you can visit language-n-justice.com or find us on social media at langjusticepod. Questions, comments, and concerns are welcome. Language and Justice can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. Remember, language is a social justice issue, so let's talk about it.